Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. One of the very worst train accidents that ever happened in U.S. history occurred in Connecticut way back in 1891, and it happened in the very rural northeast Connecticut town of Thompson. Now, it involved not one, not two, not three, but four separate trains. They all collided in less than 10 minutes, resulting in deaths, dozens of injuries, and of course, lots of physical damage. Well, here to explain just what happened and how is Joe Iamartino. He's the president of the Thompson, Connecticut Historical Society and has been for the past 20 years. And now, the Great East Thompson train wreck. If you've ever read about the Great East Thompson train wreck, you already know there were two deaths. However, what you're going to learn today, in fact, for the very first time, is that there were actually three deaths, and it's a pretty incredible story behind that third fatality. Now, information on this particular casualty was uncovered after some very deep research conducted to prepare for a PBS film on the topic. And you're also going to hear a very eerie story of the premonition that one railroad employee had, and it saved his life. Wait until you hear that one. The accident itself occurred on a train line that used to crisscross Connecticut diagonally. It ran from Danbury in the west all the way up to the northeast corner of the state right near the borders with Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It was called the New York and New England line. Well, today it's all gone. Most of the track has been ripped up and it's been replaced by hiking trails. Now, this accident occurred in northeastern Connecticut so much so that in fact, if it had been just three quarters of a mile more to the east, we'd be talking about a story from Massachusetts. It happened in this town called Thompson, where Joe Iamartino has been president of the Thompson Historical Society for the past 20 years and counting. People have probably heard of Thompson because of Thompson Speedway and, and people who know Connecticut would know of Thompson. But for those who don't, let's orient the uh, audience about this. Uh, with the old New York and New England line, it was the last stop, wasn't it, in Connecticut before the train went to Massachusetts? Absolutely. It's up in the quiet corner of Connecticut, uh, very close to the tri-state marker, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Yeah, and while we're on that, tell me a little bit about that tri-state marker. I assume a lot of people hike up there. Yeah, it's a great journey. It's a little bit steep for those who come to visit, but it's a great hike for tens of thousands of people. This is one of the busiest hiking areas that we have in the tri-state region there. So people come from all over to walk the airline trail and then take the spur off to the tri-state marker. Now, I also know a lot of people come to the, the site where the train accident occurred. I mean, this was the largest number of trains involved in a single accident in U.S. railroad history. So people make the Mecca to East Thompson to see this. I guess there's not really too much to see in, except for maybe some commemorative plaques and that sort of thing. But in its day, East Thompson had passenger, a freight, a telegraph house. Tell me a little bit about what was there. Well, it was a connection point on the main route heading off to Boston. It connected from Putnam, essentially from New York City on through. That's an airline trail. It was essentially thinking like it was flying like a bird in the most direct route. It had a large railroad station, a switcher, a 
turntable, a nice turntable to be able to turn the locomotives around. And then it had a depot, freight depot, a large watering tower. It was a pretty sizable site, considering that it had the three lines. It had the main line going up to Southbridge and Webster, and then the two lines connecting to Putnam and on north. If you were switching things over uh, one line to another, it was manual, manual pulls. And so in photographs, you can see the handles inside the building where they could move the tracks. And some of that infrastructure still exists in the ground. You can still see it today. Obviously, switching back then was quite primitive. When this accident occurred, the thing that was happening was one of the station people were running down the line with a waving lantern trying to alert the oncoming locomotive. That's what they had to resort to on a foggy day. Normally, they would rely on you know, each station had its station master, they'd sit in the telegraph office, and that was the way of communicating between stations, but they didn't have any way to communicate with the train once it left the station. No way to get any messages to them at all. And in the very earliest days, there was even a problem coordinating pocket watches with the engineers to make sure everybody was working on the same time. Yeah, that's why we have the rail zones and time zones we have in the United States today. Exactly. Let's go into December 4th and talk about what kind of day it was. 1891, there's no global warming. It's coming up, uh, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it was cold and foggy. That's what I've heard. Uh, what can you tell me about the conditions? It was early in the morning, uh, a little bit after 630 in the morning. What was it like? Yeah, the fog was hanging low. Uh, that's the stories that were told. No snow really on the ground. And you couldn't see more than a quarter mile down the track. It was that foggy. And did that end up contributing to the accident from the best of your knowledge? No, I don't think so. If we're talking about one of the station people running down the tracks, trying to alert them, stopping a train going that fast just was not practical given the circumstances of the time. So, no, I don't think weather was a true condition of the accident. Okay. The trick of this entire podcast episode is going to be to help people understand what happened that day using just our words. So here we go. Let's try it. There were two freight trains and two passenger trains, and three of those four trains were heading from Putnam, Connecticut to East Thompson, Connecticut, and the fourth train was already in East Thompson and was going to take off out of East Thompson and go on that spur line you talked about earlier to Webster and Southbridge, Massachusetts, and, and be out of the way. So there were three trains that were going eastbound, and there were two tracks between Putnam and East Thompson. One was supposed to be reserved for eastbound traffic, and the other was supposed to be reserved for westbound traffic. So if you have three trains going eastbound, you would say, okay, you keep them all on the eastbound track. That's not what happened. Okay. So they thought they had enough time that they would send the two, one in the eastbound, one in the westbound. In, a, in today's world, if we are driving where you have a normal country road with a left and right hand, both cars would be going side by side in the same direction. Unusual, but it's allowed by passing where one car would pass another. And that is exactly what the dispatcher was hoping would happen. One would overtake the other and then switch back into the normal lane when they got 
to the right destination. Unfortunately, everyone forgot that there was a Southbridge local that was already sitting there and getting ready to go on its normal route heading up towards Webster and Southbridge. And that one was allowed to sit too long on its line. Now, this train you're talking about that was just sitting there, just for the record, it was in East Thompson and it was in that westbound lane on the left side. Right. It had been backed up and was getting set to go towards its normal run into Massachusetts. Now, there's been some discussion whether the switch was left open or switch was closed. We're just going to say there was a train sitting there in the wrong spot when the trains were steaming northeast from Putnam. And once they realized what was happening, it was too late. But it was sitting in the wrong spot. And it was sitting on the right of way for the trains coming north. So it essentially like you back out into a road and, and turn around. That's exactly what happened. This thing had backed into the into a lane and was still sitting there when here comes the trains from Putnam. There was a guy, and I forget his name, Otis somebody, who was uh, on duty that day in East Thompson. And he saw this freight train coming along on the on the westbound track, the wrong track it turned out, headed toward East Thompson where this other train was sitting, ready to take off for Southbridge. He knew what was going to happen, and he went running with his lantern trying to get the East Thompson crew off that train because he figured there was going to be a crash. Do I have that right? You have that exactly right. That is what happened. And it was running out there, doing everything they could to stop it, but unfortunately, was not in time. And the collision occurred, the first collision occurred, scattering debris all over the tracks, which is not good when you have two more trains heading towards you uh, just minutes apart. Right. So they, they jackknife and, and not only, of course, clog the westbound track, which they were both on, but all that debris then went across the eastbound track as well. And now you have this train. It was called the Long Island and Eastern States Express. And, and you have a gentleman, Harry Tabor, is the engineer, and Jerry Fitzgerald, the fireman. And I, I understand they had maybe a dozen passengers or something on that train. And I think there's an interesting backstory here. Had they not, uh, before they got to Putnam, I understand they were having some trouble with their engine and they had requested a new engine in Putnam. So now that they had taken the time to do that, they were running late and they were trying to make up time. Is that is that what, what happened? That's very close to the story that we've been told. And so making up time, they're cranking along at about 50 miles an hour, obviously you know, not knowing what was ahead of them. There was also the premonition story. The fireman on that train was Jerry Fitzgerald. He replaced... Mr. Flynn, Mike Flynn, Mike Flynn that night said, I am not going, I am not going in. There's something bad's going to happen. And so they had the call in at the last minute, Mr. Jerry Fitzgerald. Uh, and that is uh, unfortunate for him since he didn't make it. He, uh, he did not survive the collision. That is unbelievably spooky. It is. And the engineer, uh, Harry Tabor, also was killed in that accident. So they crash into the jackknifed cars that are across the eastbound track, blocking the eastbound track that they were appropriately on, but the debris was there and they couldn't stop. They were going too fast. 
And then you have this other train that was coming up, I think from the Norwich, Connecticut area, had come up to Putnam, and it was cleared to go ahead because as far as the dispatcher knew, everything was fine. He had sent the freight train on the westbound track. He had sent the passenger train on the eastbound track, and he said, okay, you know, Norwich train, now you're cleared to go on the eastbound track as well. And then what happened after that? As that Norwich steamboat train was coming forward, not knowing what it was facing around the turn, fire had broken out because most of these cars and the locomotive cabs themselves were wood. They were burning. So smoke was everywhere. Fire was everywhere. There was cotton bales all over scattered, which sometimes confuses people. They think the cotton is snow, but it wasn't snow. Now you have a nearby home damaged probably on fire as well. And here comes the Norwich steamboat train. Another flagman was sent out on that situation, running down to stop that one. It's about 6.45, 6.46 a.m. Couldn't stop it. And it goes eight to 10 feet right into the back end of the Eastern States Express, which is already scattered. It uh, sets fire to that sleeping car, which was a Pullman sleeping car. Cab is burning as well. And here comes the one new piece of the story. Inside the Eastern States Express was a man by the name of Rath. R-H Rath, R-A-T-H. Mr. Rath was seen by people in that car Uh, moments before the collision with the Norwich steamboat train. So remember, an accident has occurred. He's on the train. He's in the back of the train. And then, bam, they get hit by the steamboat train. And he's never seen again. Fire is everywhere. And no one sees Mr. Rath from that moment on. In the litigation that followed, the train company refused to give Mrs. Rath any insurance or any compensation for the death of her husband. And there were some suggestions by the lawyers for the train company that he was faking his death and was uh, very much alive. But uh, unfortunately, that was not true. His keys were found in the fire. And his, both his brother, who was his business partner, and his wife declared he was never seen again. And uh, probate was obviously processed in New York, and, and that was that. Never declared dead from that point on. And that leads us to the, the story of the ghost. So from that point on, for many, many years, people would talk about the presence of a ghost And it was usually in October, even though the accident occurred in December, the ghost is talked about in October and November, probably due to Halloween. Only recently, research by Mark Snay from the Thompson Historical Society confirmed his death, and there have been no ghost sightings since. Now, Mr. Rath, again, remember the spelling, R-A-T-H. We've been calling his visitations the Wrath of Mr. Rath. Now that he's uh, legally passed, according to us, declared dead, uh, we think he's resting in peace as he should. What an unbelievable story. 
Unbelievable. I, you know, and when you talk about unbelievable, I had spoken to you before again, uh, we started recording and I was shocked to learn how quickly service resumed on that New York, New England line. Can you tell me about that again? This was the main artery for that day. Again, the most direct route, New York to uh, Boston. And so the work crews, they brought in a work train as quickly as they could, working in both directions. And so there's a number of photos taken. The Historical Society has a a large collection of uh, railroad photos. And in it, we have the only known photos, all of the only known photos of the wreck. Tom Chase, former relief from the Smithsonian, has dated those photos and timed them. So we can see them moving during the day, step by step. And we can see the progress immediately after the accident. Where was everything on the tracks? And then here comes the work crews. You can see them with their crowbars trying to get the line fixed up. That afternoon, they were able to get trains through on one line. And that's pretty amazing, you know, eight hours after an accident, up and running again. Pretty good. That is amazing. The New York and New England line continued until 1955. It ceased operations then. And with the uh, passage of the infrastructure bill uh, by Congress, uh, there was uh, talk of maybe looking at at least reopening this diagonal route from New York to Boston, which is shorter than going the shoreline route that Amtrak currently uh, goes. Any talk of that in the East Thompson area? Well, I think the airline trail people might have something to say about that. They're very proud of the walking trail, biking trail, horseback trail. It's been discussed. Extension lines down from Worcester have been talked about again, uh, connecting up to Boston. So I would say nothing is forever. And we have this beautiful scenic uh, bucolic path today. And who knows what 10, 20, 50 years might bring in terms of the need for mass transit and, and more train lines. The town of Thompson and the National Park Service have been working with the airline trail to expand the park there. So we have new signage explaining what happened. There's going to be a picnic pavilion, a restored turntable will be there, a welcome kiosk. So there's going to be an extensive reworking of it. And just for the record, there was one other train crash in the U.S. that also involved four trains, meaning that East Thompson is not the single worst such accident in the country's history. However, in that other accident, it took several hours for four trains to collide, whereas In East Thompson, it took less than 10 minutes. Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. One last piece of train crash history. Now, everybody's heard of Casey Jones, but do you really know the story behind his crash? Turns out it happened in the year 1900 in the state of Mississippi. It was a fatal crash, but in this case, only Casey himself was killed. I want to thank my guest for today's show, Joe Iamartino, longtime president of the Thompson, Connecticut Historical Society. 
Well, if you like the show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll be notified when the next episode's coming. And please tell your family, friends, and colleagues. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. Thank <laughs> you.